1: presented by AT&T connecting changes everything
2: you're listening to a hundred words or less with Ray Harkins Oh boy, oh boy! Here we are today, gathered here around the altar of punk and hardcore and indie rock and emo and whatever DIY music scene you ascribe to, to have discussions with people who are involved in it, who are creating it, documenting it. I don't care what it is, as long as you are deeply involved, because uh, that's uh, that is meaningful to me, and I know it's meaningful to you today is a goddamn legend. (laughs) And I do not use those words lightly. I know legend, like if people throw that around like hyperbole, Tim Berry from Avail. And the reason that, well, actually, I shouldn't even tell you the reason because Tim Berry should be a legend. Avail looms large within the punk and hardcore ecosystem. They are a band that worked their tails off when they were out there touring some 250, 300 days out of the year when uh, touring was, uh, you know, I mean, obviously was happening in the early to mid 90s, but, uh, you know, wasn't as robust as it is now. And uh, they were drawing so many people from so many different music scenes. And that is why I loved Veil. Vale. Every time that I saw them was like just this rad hodgepodge of people from all different music scenes coming there to have a good time pump their fist in the air, sing along, circle pit, and I love Avail. I, uh, at one point, I decided against it, actually, but I was uh, considering an Avail tattoo. That's how much I enjoy this band, but I punished Tim Berry uh, for quite some time and then was able to link up with a publicist of his because they are promoting a re-release Of Satiate, which is an incredible full length of theirs, very early on in the Avail career, but uh, they're out promoting it, and you can easily find it on their Merch Now site, or you can listen to it on all the uh, streaming platforms, but uh, Avail, we're talking, you know, 4am Friday, Over the James, so much great music, and Tim is very prolific still, he puts out a lot of great music under his name, yeah, I was going to say his moniker, but no, it's his name, Tim Barry, And, uh, yeah, Vale's playing some shows right now. It's just, it's incredibly exciting. So, Let's talk about favors that you can do for me, because, you know, I'm giving you free stuff, (laughs) and I understand you have to listen to ads and what have you, but, like, there are certain trade-offs that we're talking about here, and I would really greatly appreciate if you could go to your favorite podcast platform, namely either Spotify and or Apple Podcasts, give it a star rating and review. I know everyone asks you to do that, but, like, literally, I'm talking to you right now. you probably listen to this show for, you know, maybe a year or so, and are like, ah, you know, maybe I'll do this, maybe I won't. I'm just trying to push you over the edge today and be like, all right, give it give it those stars, and I would appreciate that. Uh, you can always also email the show, one hundred words podcast at gmail.com. That comes directly to me, and I will then become your best friend. <laughs> that's not a promise, but uh, you know, it it may be a threat because I tend to respond to emails punishingly fast. And then there are some times where I may just let it sit for a bit. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. Let's talk to Tim Barry. Like I said, Avail is out there playing shows. They just re released Satiate, an incredible full length of theirs. I pre ordered that so fast on vinyl and I got it. It's a great package. It's awesome. So go listen to Avail. Go celebrate Avail. And when you can see them, go see them because they are an incredible band. And Tim Berry, he uh, is, I describe him as this he's a salt of the earth dude. He just likes music, likes art, likes creating, likes existing in the world. And that makes me really happy. So here is the engaging conversation I had with Tim. something that I've always found very incredible about avail is the fact that you guys are the ultimate connector band. And when I say that, you know, and I I know this will probably resonate with you. You pulled people from like every single scene imaginable, like me growing up in the, you know, orange County straight edge hardcore scene. Like my music tastes were, you know, like varied, but not to the point that I was like, you know, where we are now as adults or what have you. But, You know, when you were out there grinding it out in the road constantly in the mid to late 90s, you were pulling all these people from different scenes. And I know that that was like unintentional when you guys were first starting. But when did you maybe start to personally notice like, hey, we are drawing like these hardcore kids and like these, you know, Liberty Spike punk kids like everyone's in the same room together. And that is maybe not the most common thing. Uh, Or did you even notice that?
1: I don't think we even noticed it. Okay. I think you noticed that we were the Dolly Parton of punk. Um, <laughs> That's good. I like that. Um, I, I think the guys in Avail are all so different that to see a room filled with those differences didn't seem abnormal to us. Our social life was really diverse um, at home. Our social life on the road was really diverse. Um, you know, we really were and continue to be an eclectic group of people. Um, And, you know, and you you say like, you know, yeah, there's punks and there's skins and there's hardcore kids, but there's also like, you know, uh, stereotypically normal people coming to the shows and and metalheads and, and uh, just what a neat mix. And I guess it, it, I didn't realize it or I'm sure the other guys didn't realize it. until people started talking about it, it went, a veil was like an unintentional slow grind. um, Never becoming very popular, but, but uh, maybe well known in, in a sort of niche of the underground and in that slow grind comes more and more press. And I think back then, you, you know, if I'd read something in, you know, maximum rock and roll or punk planet mentioning how different all the folks at the shows uh, were um, and how often they all got along. We all got along without too much conflict. I think that's probably when we realized that we're um, in that sort of bracket. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that continues, you know, like back in the, in the, I guess, probably in the seventies or eighties, people attached to music like it was, um, you know, their gang. If you go under bridges, you'll see people have written like Led Zeppelin or Metallica and things like that, and that's almost like tribalizing. And I think what's important about music and art and you know any sort of public outlet is that it should be a unifier, especially right now with how complicated the country is. I hope that um, you know, small little sparks of music or art or whatever really start bringing people back together again, even if it's just a small thing in the punk world.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, And I think I, I agree with your sentiment, and I think it's what made uh, a veil that, I- in my mind, and I know a lot of other people's minds, exactly what you were talking about, you were this you know collection of weirdo misfits, which many people are in the punk and hardcore and DIY scene. And, but just the fact that people could attach themselves or see a version of themselves, in what you guys are, are doing. And then that's where you're able to build that, you know, big tent of camaraderie that it's like, it doesn't matter where we came from. We're all here. And that's, what's the most important thing, which, uh, you know, I think that you guys, whether you are recognizing it or not, that's the embodiment that you were doing where it's just like, Oh, well,
1: yeah, we'll go on tour with this band. Like we just like them. They're our friends. Like exactly. Awesome. Right. Exactly. Right. And, and you know, that's a uh, really important thing that people should note uh, that those of uh, us who don't play music uh, publicly, or don't tour. Most musicians, in retrospect, are so full of shit they they make up what happened instead of realizing that it just happened. Uh, I think there's very few people who sit down and sort of draft what they want to happen with their musical, quote unquote, careers. I think for most of us, especially coming up in independent music in the underground. Um, in the 90s uh, We were just going Full force Trying to get from one show to another In any way possible And not realizing What that trail was leaving behind um, Whether it be positive or negative And so like It's super easy to look back On your accomplishments Over a uh, You know a number of years of touring And releasing records And sort of rewrite it To calibrate your ego in it, but really, we had no idea at all what we were doing. We were yeah. just drawn to music for whatever reasons that we were. And um, in yeah, it really is bizarre to think back on. Well, absolutely. I mean, I'm thinking like setting up tours. I used to set up tours on payphones, or we used to, I used a fax machine that Lookout Records sent us to set up our first tour of Europe in 1994 with Paula from the band Spitboy on in the UK, sort of like orchestrating everything um, from her end, but we didn't have enough money to pay for the phone bills, So we faxed back and forth, which was a new technology on this transparent paper that we copied the directions on that disappeared. And, you know, like in, in a time when there was no computers or, or no cell phones and directions would simply be go to town, look for punks and we would play squats. And it's just remarkable to look back on the whole thing. And and I'm not interested in sitting and like reinventing, um, you know, like I woke up, put my, put my shoes on, picked up my guitar and wrote this great song. And this is where it comes from. That's bullshit. It just happened. Song popped up. Some people liked it. We went on the road Right.
2: You operate, I mean, and I think that idea of operating off of instinct is what. It, it it enables you to obviously follow, I mean, this sounds so highfalutin, but like follow your muse, you know, and it's like, that's what you're doing. That's what you have been doing with your own solo project. You were following what your instinct and what the songs will make of it, as opposed to, well, but you know, the, the common trajectory of people getting out of punk or, you know, and I use that in air quotes, but like, Oh, I gotta be a folk guy now. It's like, no, this is just what you are and what you always have been.
1: Yeah. I mean, personally, yeah. I mean, yeah, people, I think the, the key word that you used is instinct. Um, I mean, if I'm just speaking about myself and not avail as a whole is, is all the songs that I have written personally would have been written whether anyone was listening or not. And for whatever reasons, music and writing is one of my many sort of, um, I wouldn't call them hobbies, just things that occur in my life seasonally so you know like i'll spend the winter writing for whatever reason i've always been like that in fact i was just at my mom's house and and i played her and all the cousins my all the cousins Um, my first song that i ever wrote which went go to school every day don't know why it don't pay this sucks this sucks this sucks this sucks and i wrote that when i was 14 and i never stopped writing shitty songs but it's also very important to note that uh, avails writing was very um what's the word collaborative we all wrote so right um yeah
2: yeah and, and kind of putting the, the focus on you as an individual I, I know you were born and raised in northern virginia and it, it was kind of a you know an unconventional scenario from what i understand it in regards to I, I wouldn't maybe go so far as to label it as a as a commune but i've you know read how, you describing your uh you know kind of free willing existence as a, as a kid. Uh is that correct or am I completely off base? Commune,
1: you know. Okay. No no no. Northern Virginia, it's it's impossible to explain Northern Virginia in 2022 because sure. it's so different than it was when we were kids. Um Not all of Avail, but much of Avail lived in, when we left Northern Virginia, it was from a planned community in Fairfax County. But it sort of had a a utopian um, ideal that didn't come to fruition because of um, its proximity to Washington, D.C., and the availability of sort of like there wasn't building codes and, and districts and whatnot that made it develop in a way that was unforgivable. Um, and so it's so far removed from where we are now that it almost seems irrelevant. I mean, when we left, my brother was down here, um, None of us were doing anything. I was laying carpet um, in Northern Virginia, and my dad uh, signed a lease for us for a a sort of apartment here in Richmond. And really a veil, although it started in high school with a a group of friends who sort of, we, we kind of circled around in different bands, um, it really didn't start until um, the record "Dixie," like even "Satiate," which we're, 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 I guess we're supposed to talk about today, which was the first record, is like right when it's just Avail is just starting to find its way um, after many lineup changes and and uh, whatnot. Right, right, for sure.
2: And I know, uh, your, uh, family structure, like, do you have brothers and sisters, correct? Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. My sister is here. My brother is now up North in Jersey. Okay. New York, New York state.
2: Got it. Um, and, and I know you were exposed to, um, you know, music at a pretty early age in regards to, you know, you attending the Catholic church and your parents being in a choir and stuff like that. Um, when, uh, had had music kind of seeped into you, uh, I know because of that, but like, did you like it and identify with it where it's like, oh, that's cool. They're singing. Like, you know, I I like the way that music sounds.
1: No, not at church. I hated it. Um, And and the music that my parents played at church, it's a Catholic church and my family's pretty Irish, but it is not an Irish Catholic church. Um, They played, there was a banjo player, a bass player, uh, and I call it the Guitar Army, and they sang these sort of um, contemporary versions of of Christian songs. It was very uh, uh, rebellious in the eyes of, of um, the normal Catholic church, and looking back on that, that's pretty damn cool. My mom was definitely like an earth mother and whatnot, um, but really my interest in music, uh, the path that I ended up, on was um, blazed by my older brother, James. Uh, my sister's much younger, and she's a musician. My brother is a composer, and my sister is a violin player. Um, and somewhere I felt right in the middle of all that. When I was a kid, my dad was sent over to England for some training. And uh, the whole family went. And that's where I kind of took off with music. It was a whole nother fucking level for me. I was a preteen and my dad was busy and he gave my brother and I, who's two years older, um, subway passes, tube passes, and we just did whatever the hell we want. It's, it's where I started drinking beer at a very young age and right. where I saw my first punk show, it's where I first fell in love with metal music. And this is before metal was really mainstream or before like the glam shit took over the MTV world in the um, 80s in the United States. So I got to see um, Metallica uh, at the very beginning of the Ride the Lightning tour in a club that was about 1200 capacity. Um, like front row. I got to see Iron Maiden. The first show I saw was Iron Maiden on the World Slavery Tour at Hammersmith Odeon in 1984. Um, I did not make it to see The Clash, although my brother went and brought me a t-shirt. I sat outside the show at Brixton Academy. Um, I saw a French punk band at the marquee. I had no idea what punk was. I was a metalhead, so I packed to the front so that I could headbang. And then suddenly a circle pit broke out And it was one of the most utterly confusing things I'd ever witnessed. Um, And obviously it's hard to put this in perspective, but that was when slam dancing was still like a secret culture, like a part of a secret society It hadn't been blown up by Nirvana on MTV yet. So it was really enticing and interesting to understand how it worked. Um, So that's the direction. And then when I came back to Virginia – after that, I was a full-blown metalhead. And from there, I got into thrash. And then there was a crossover between, like, punks, skaters, and the metalheads. In fact, that was intentional because there was so much conflict in that area and so many fights that we sort of banded together uh, as a safety in numbers sort of thing. And that w- that's what united the punks and the skins and the metalheads and the skaters. It's like a defensive thing. Sure, sure, and sure. And, um, and and there there you go. Then I started playing drums and playing in bands, all in high school, metal bands with my brother um, mainly, and then I ended up in a in a band that was heavily influenced by the groups that came out of your area in Southern California, heavily influenced by RKL, and uh, and heavily influenced by the adolescents. I was in a band called LDK, which is an acronym for learning disabled kids because, okay, because we all were. And I was a, like a speed metal drummer who ended up in that band and, um, quit the band when I got locked up for a little bit, or maybe I got locked. Maybe I quit. the band.
2: Yeah. Maybe maybe the locked up part made you not be in the band. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Anyway, when I came out, um, I, um, Uh, Was asked to be the drummer in Avail, and that's how I. And Avail was in that loose group of misfits that played music in different bands. And I don't remember what happened to whoever was playing the drums at that point. But um, yeah, then I started drumming in Avail. Drumming in Avail, yeah. There was a different singer, and it was Joe, me. The only the only members from back then are Joe and I.
2: Right. Right. And the, um, I know that like you mentioned, as you were, you know, kind of putting together all of these, uh, you know, musical collections and, and getting exposed to all that, uh, I'm going to presume that school was not ever an important part of your life. Uh, did you ever? Yeah. Okay.
1: (laughs) No, I was the guy on the BMX bike with a, I looked like I was in municipal waste. So I, 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 (laughs) but an OG. So I, I, you know, like I, I was the guy in the BMX bike with the pack of Marlboro Reds in his battle vest with a venom patch on the back um, that was selling you LSD and weed and um, riding around on my BMX bike. So no school was not anything of interest to me. In fact, and we should, I don't want to be too long winded here if we're talking about a veil uh, so much, but, um, I really couldn't even read when I got out of high school. In fact, it was a, the person who helped Avail put the our first record out that really encouraged me to 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 see what I was trying to put together when I was looking at words. Um, and right. we sh- we should touch on that. So no, school was not a thing. Right,
2: and I, I'm gonna guess that like because of that the you know life path as far as oh, I'm going to you know go to college and get a career, like all that stuff was not even part of the radar as well
1: no i mean yeah. I, I, I i i I took classes at the community college here, but mainly things that I was interested in, like like African American history and things like that, and that was more me just trying to to learn. I've always believed that I don't need to pay people, to to I don't need to get in debt to learn things. So what I I would do back then is I would choose topics and study them on my own. Six months of auto mechanics, or um, I'd read about feminism for a year, or um, anything, all kinds of interesting shit. Mainly history, though. Right,
2: and it's and, and I find that you know interesting and compelling because that was probably in conjunction with you learning about all of these different, you know, not only musical styles, but then a lot of these bands were bringing a different perspective, whether it was politically or socioeconomically or whatever. So you were just like trying to expand your world at a rapid pace. I'm guessing. I guess I was. Yeah.
1: I mean, I was really interested in punk rock, the whole community of it. I finally, I think when you grow up in a place like Northern Virginia, you, you lack identity. And I finally felt like I, you know, like I finally felt like I, I had like a group of friends, like I had a culture. We celebrated when we went to shows. We cared about our community. And in doing so, we were active in it. It felt good as a young person to really be be active. And Richmond uh, was very small then. It was a very small community. And I I think not available, but I think like the whole uh, group of active people in Richmond did a lot of good back then and and planted a lot of seeds that came to fruition recently.
2: Oh boy, you know what time it is. It's Rockabilia time. And this code is going to get you 10% off your order, 100 words or less. And what does Rockabilia do? They ship you all of the latest and greatest band merch that you could possibly shake a stick at. I don't care what band you're into. They have it and they have multiple different designs. They have all of your favorite stuff right there at your fingertips. Ships quick to you from the Midwest and it's all independently owned and operated. They've been in business for over 30 years. I think they should have like a really cool 35th or 40th anniversary, or who knows? Maybe it might have even been longer, but regardless, Rockabilia is a website that you need to go to. You will have so much fun on there. I do it uh, probably like once a month. I just get lost in there for a good 20 minutes or so, and then end up filling my cart and checking out and uh, having a lot of fun with it. So rockabilly.com 100 words or less is the promo code thank you so much for your continued support and buy band merch it's important the show is sponsored by better help we all carry around different things that stress us out right like maybe it's something really really small like man that parking space it's always taken and i wish that i would be able to like get it instead of you know this person that maybe you know is the most courteous and considerate that, you know, rose to prominence as far as, you know, touring and playing shows and stuff like that waves the flag for Richmond so high because it was, you know, so small. And then it grew, you know, over time, but then there was always that connectivity to a city in ways that, you know, like Louisville or, you know, other places around the country that have that same kind of spirit about their scenes. And they're like, oh yes, of course I'm from Richmond. Like, (laughs) yes, like we're going to talk
1: about it. And it's funny, it's 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 weird how you become how people see you. Cause so as we're traveling around pre-internet, it, it's confusing to people that you're not from like LA or New York or Boston or one of the big cities, and you say you're from Richmond or even Virginia, no one knows where the fuck it is. Like it because we're not all traveled, we haven't spent, you know, like we're not all connected yet. It's so new. It's so different. And then, like, they label you. Like, I would read articles, and it would say "avail," um, uh, "tattooed Dixie punks," right. and things like that. And you're like, "Okay, well, I guess that's what I am now." And it, and then you kind of like, with it, you you become how people see you. And so, in that, it was okay for us to say, you know what, like, we are from this shitty fucking city where it's horribly violent it's crime ridden the houses we lived in were absolutely insane the shit that happened around them people being killed uh, a lot hasn't changed in a lot of neighborhoods but and to say you know what like no we're not living in new york city or los angeles or san francisco we live in richmond virginia and that's what's up and yeah, you right, get into, reckon with that. And, and if you and if you want to get into details, seven of us live share a house for four hundred and twenty five dollars a month for the whole house. And yep. that's also where our band practice is. And that's where we store all our merchandise. <laughs> so do the math. If you can li- <laughs> if you can live with crack, then you can live in, in Richmond
2: right right and I, honestly i I think because of that uh, life experience and the way that you guys uh, you know approached not only you know the music that you played but it was a uh and i mean this in a non- pejorative sense like it was a very cult-like experience where it's like hey we'll welcome you into the you know the poor you know hungry and ugly happy like you know we'll, we'll introduce you to that community um, as long as you're willing to follow along and not judge us based off of that and i, right. I think that it really did inspire people to follow you guys in a way that, you know, many other bands like didn't reach that uh, level of, of dedication to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I know that, I mean, you've spoken about this before as well in regards to kind of being the de facto manager, you know, Mm -hmm. like once the touring started to happen and, you know, dealing with booking agents and, you know, people like working with record labels. um, I knew that that, like really, and you've expressed it, it ground you down to where it was like, this is not a fun part of being in a band. Um, was there a time that you, uh, I guess, enjoyed that aspect of it? Or was it always kind of like, a, I guess we have to do this?
1: Well, for whatever reason, I've always taken that role. You know, a lot of the networking that Avail gained was that I set up shows in Richmond, uh, starting in 1990. So, you know, I was setting up, shows for Born Against and Rorschach and Neurosis and Clutch and um, endless amounts of bands that would come through. And so we made a lot of friends. And I think because of me having those connections from setting up shows, it became just normalized for me to be the one who reached out for paybacks. Uh, and, and yeah, eventually, um, eventually I, I couldn't handle the booking – and I was using, um, uh, uh, the Adam Nathanson, who's actually my favorite lyricist of all time, who is, who is the singer for young pioneers and, uh, a member of the band born against, uh, they had gone born against, had gone on a 11 week us tour in Canada too with Rorschach. And at the end of the tour, he sent a list of phone numbers that of the shows that went well. And between that list and, um, And uh, contacts I'd made setting up shows, we started touring. And I don't remember what year it was, maybe 94. Margie Albin of Do It Booking started handling us. And she still books my shows and avail shows to this day. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, at some point, I just hated it. It, Bo will will boast in in his way of... of, um, He was the only member that in between tours had to work. So we'd come home from tour and he'd wash dishes or whatever. But like my response to that would be, I would have loved to have the opportunity to work between tours. Right. But I was stuck at home managing a veil. Um, And management is a thankless job. It causes nothing but conflict. And I never was able to sort of resign the position um, to till, till the end till till I consciously stopped being a right. veil. Um, and I don't have any regrets about it. I learned so much. I mean, I, I manage myself my music now, which is a lot more work than a veil was, except that it doesn't. I don't have to check everything with right. know, a bunch of people. <laughs> <to make it laughs> yeah. <time. laughs>
2: You're the you're the ultimate decider. There's only one voice you need to listen to. That's okay. the one inside your head. Yeah. So, um, as you started to, you know, grow in popularity and, uh, have, you know, I just know from watching you guys over the times that I did where you started to play larger shows and you started to be put in environments that were, you know, comfortable, but still maybe outside of what you had previously done, um, was there like, did you feel uh, the excitement, or was it one of those things that you were too kind of focused on, you know, getting to the next show that like the appreciation maybe wasn't uh, recognized or there,
1: or or did you enjoy it as you were going through it? I don't know, it's so weird because I don't remember it, it getting popular, okay. Although, although, if I look back at pictures, it's like we, you know, like we were just talking about the living room in Santa Barbara, and it's like you know, thirty people there or whatever. Um but at some point there was a lot more. And <laughs> and I do remember the break the, the where Avail sort of transitioned. There was two things. There's these are really this is really important. Avail refused to do support tours until nineteen ninety eight. Avail never did a support tour. So uh-huh. Where the standard in the music business, say for me right now, um, is to get an offer to play a bunch of shows with Brian Fallon. And in doing so, if I'm opening for Brian, I'm exposed to a whole new audience. Or Frank Turner, and I get to go to England and open for Frank Turner for three weeks, exposing me to all of his fans in England. Um, Avail never did that. So all the way until 1998. We did that by word of mouth without the internet and social networks. So it was just talking and we played every single tiny little town that you can imagine. And eventually all of that came back to us when we released a record in 1998 called over the James, which I wouldn't call a breakthrough record as much as it, as much as it is the, sort of like the most popular we became it was our peak as sort of like numbers go probably with record sales and definitely with show turnout and that is the year that we first did a support tour and we spent five weeks in europe on our, on our own and then came back after a one-day break and opened for the suicide machines on a five-week tour if I think it was five weeks and it was fucking fantastic and they became lifelong friends. And I think that sort of, because we bonded so much with them and the shows were so great, I think that sort of flipped our switch with opening for bands and um, we never stopped doing it. So, but when we sort of peaked, I don't think we realized anything that was going on. I remember Vanessa Burt from mutiny PR who was working at fat at some point had me doing like a press day in New York city. And there was a line down the block of people to get quotes from me. And I think that's when I was like, this is getting a little weird. Um, Right.
2: Yeah. it's like, this is this many people want to talk to me. This is weird.
1: Yeah. And that was right around over the James, but, but we never got popular in our heads. We were still just this weird dysfunctional group of people who toured in a you know, a really old Econo line with a, a pulling a trailer on our own um, with, you know, two close friends as roadies. So um, I think popularity, so much of it, we had, we kept ourselves in check so much that I don't think we saw anything but the next show. I mean, really on tour, it, you can't, you don't have time to sit and digest it. You, you, your goal is to, Get as much rest as you can so that you can just kill it on stage to do it all over again. It's just getting through the day,
2: right. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, especially too, where you were existing, like you said, in the word in the world of word to mouth and obviously pre-internet and all that sort of stuff, like there isn't as many inputs of people telling you that like, oh my gosh, like, you know, you're going to be the next biggest band or whatever. Like, yes, of course, some of that can echo back to you, but then, you know, you're not going to take it seriously. So that idea is not going to embed itself where you're old, like you're thinking about it and making your creative decisions based around that, as opposed to, you know, just following the, everything that you were doing previously.
1: Exactly. And so our brain function has changed in the last 20 years. So there is no getting off stage and seeing the reaction instantly on your phone. Do you know what I'm saying? There is Absolutely. There is no like, how did that show go? Pick up your phone, see how many more followers you have on Instagram. It was just like us in the dressing room being like, oh, man, we got to slow down the tempo on Southbound 95 you know what i mean or like totally i can't i I can't sing that fast guys slow down i'm losing my voice really bad so i'm gonna go to the van because i can't talk anymore but so but so yeah like you say like you know like your musical output changing based on the reaction of the crowd man that that happened to us because people they had a loyalty and a stereotype with records and you know, record labels and Lookout Records was very eclectic. And that's what Avail was on um, for the good years. I'll just call them the good years. But, you know, my the three albums that people most associate with, like the real Avail is Dixie, 4 a.m. Friday and Over the James. Yeah. Um, and those are the Lookout years. And the record label was run so well. And so ethically by Larry Livermore, who really, really has always had his heart in the right place, Um, had such a neat group of music coming out of coming coming out of that record label. And uh, I felt like we were really a part of that. But when we switched over to fat records, now you got to think like late 90s fat records, people only associate it. With uh, a certain fast melodic punk punk, punk pop, pop punk style. And I think that the stare, like the sort of like word around was that we were going that direction. And I really do think that influenced us on our first uh, Fat Records release, where we were like, actually, fuck y'all, we're not going that direction. We're going to be- become like a harder, heavier hardcore band. And, um, that's where i think we started just going downhill when you start thinking about how people see you it, it it's not good like it, it's just in life in general and it, we really just have to be who we are and again like you say, i love that you used the word instinct i don't have that in my vocabulary enough where before we were writing by instinct or by influence where you have like a guitar player who's riffing Leonard Skinner songs that he grew up playing or a, a bass player who's pulling bass melodies from "Rights of Spring or other great DC bands. And you have uh, a drummer who hits like Dave Grohl before we even heard Nirvana and is heavily influenced by DC music and metal. And then you have this crazy skinhead, uh, Navy deserter, Bo, who is just way into Southern California punk, and then me, who just likes folk music, like country and folk music. We are going to write by instinct, and it's going to be eclectic, and it's going to be fucking different. Um, But when we start writing or being who, you know, like just trying to do something uh, because we're looking at ourselves how people might may judge us that's where things just start going downhill and i mean that in life in general not just with music we really can't let people influence us because yeah. things just start going weird <laughs> it's ho- no it's
2: and it, it it no one is immune to it cuz it definitely like you said when you can Positively lean into the expectations of what people want from you. You know, you could end up writing the same record eight times in a row, which for some bands is fine, but for others, it's like we're bored. We don't need to do that anymore. But then on the flip side is exactly what you're talking about, where it's like, okay, well, we're signing to fat, but we're going to be, you know, we're not going to be like no use for a name and every other band on the label because we're going to be, you know, hard or whatever. So I I completely understand where you're coming from.
1: Yeah. It was an interesting time. Definitely pivotal. um, In in my eyes and in retrospect, looking back on avail about, that's about where I started. I had a lot of personal struggles at that point. And then when I kind of came out of them, I was like, I just don't know that I like this anymore. Yeah. Uh, right. we kind got a it, moment to think about it. Yeah. Well, I didn't even really, I just, I just, you know, it was funny, like um, Bo, who is, you know, we've been close friends since kindergarten. And I remember, you know, his greatest goal with music, because he did what he was like, I have a goal. And my goal is that if I ever get to play a show in California, I will be done with music happily. And that's a pretty great goal because we accomplished that, I believe, in 92, maybe 93. I can't perfectly remember. But he and I both sort of made a pact that if this is, becomes a job where it's not fun, then we should stop. Yep. And I remember playing in Richmond. Um, so Avail put out two records on, on uh, Fat Records, and then I had given up management i just completely was over it and i really curated the tours like i really put in a lot of effort to make them really eclectic and fun for everybody and then i stopped doing the tours and we went on this tour it was a disaster it was like nobody fucking came to the shows the oh no this last tour actually was great it was darkest hour was it Darkest Hour? No, it was American Nightmare. I don't know. That was a good tour. It was. Really yeah. Well, but anyway, I got home, got to the Richmond show. And I, I remember getting off stage and looking at my now ex-wife um, in the backstage. And I was like, that's the last time I'm ever doing that. And I just <laughs> walked out of the venue and left. And I right. didn't do it again until these reunion shows.
2: Yeah, sure. And the um, I know something that has been... Uh, probably, you know, romanticized to a certain extent, but then also, you know, in actuality, like the, you know, train hopping and living frugally, um, you know, has always been something that you have made public and people are aware of that about you. Was was that kind of just like, hardwired in you like the attraction to that you know that's not meant for everybody you know i was actually it's funny i was uh driving my 10 year old son to school today and i was telling him that i was speaking to you and i you know uh, told him about kind of you know the culture of train hopping and stuff like that and he was like that sounds so cool and i'm like mm-hmm. i know it it, it, it it is pretty cool <laughs> oh, no, no,
1: um, <laughs>
2: yeah i yeah, know exactly it's like well you know in, in certain extent it is but um w- was that something that was always not just the train hopping but like i said the living frugally and all that sort of stuff was that just kind of always who you were
1: i i I think like if you go in my brother's bathroom and you look at his toothpaste it Uh. will roll it until there's not one (laughs) drop left and if you go by my sister's house right now she'll happily point out all of the things she got on her free facebook group um the day before like one of those like you know, like buy nothing groups. Sure. Um, And if you come to my house, I have two kids and, um, we live in a 900 square foot house and I'm not saying this to boast because it's almost embarrassing, but they each have a bedroom and I sleep on the couch and that's how we live. And, and I really don't have anything. I mean, I have an old pickup truck and my dad and my dad van, which is a Grand Caravan. But I don't say any of that to boast. I just maybe at some point in my life, I just like was looking at all the excess, and maybe it started getting to me. Um, honestly, I I don't know how to explain myself. My neighbors think I'm a maniac. Rachel Grace is one of my closest friends and she's just like, you're a a maniac. Like you're insane. But here's the thing is just like less is more in my life. I I am happier when things are quiet and I read books that are made of paper (laughs) and I'm not on social media and I'm outside and – I'm in the woods, um, and and eating well. And that's where you're happiest. You know, I mean, it's like, it's, I don't know if that's frugal or simplistic or, but that's just how that brings me joy. Um, and that's it. So if that's how I present myself, it's because it's the truth, um, and I've had a lot of different living situations and I've been in a lot of parts of my life where sort of like that frugalness is a necessity. Um, it, but, but, ne- but like, so train riding and stuff like that is, it's like, that is voluntary. I, you know, so many people live on the road and um, I can't get off the road. My whole life is constantly leaving to come and going away. It's just like constant, but, but, um, I all of that explore exploration I did riding trains or like hitchhiking or walking or whatever was very voluntary. Maybe I couldn't control myself, but but I could always have come home. I, I have a great mom and dad. I have my sister. You know what I'm saying? Like that I have friends. So if I needed something, they were here. Whatever compelled
0: me to be on the road all the time is just my own nonsense.
3: Right. Right.
2: Well, I, I, like that description of just like this, you know, this is an accurate portrayal. Cause I know that there is that, um, you know, notion of like, I want to display myself as something, but then that isn't actually, you know, like if you were like, oh yeah, like, you know, the nomadic lifestyle of, you know, traveling and and hopping on trains and stuff. Like I actually only did that once, but then you made that your quote unquote brand. Like that's a whole different story than who you actually are.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So like if you come to a show that I play now, I don't talk about train riding because I don't ride trains anymore. I, I don't, I might say like I woke up in the van this morning and blah, 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 because I sleep in the van almost every night. But like, um, and that's, you know, in its own way, that's, that's a form of homelessness. If you're on tour for three weeks and you're sleeping in your van every night, it's a weird, lonely, strange world, but, but I'm so used to it now. I'm a migratory bird. I mean, I just like, I've gone, I seasonally travel. It's like the same routes and I've done it for so long, but yeah, it's just who I am. And I, and I, I don't expect people to um, care either way. <laughs> but if I, but yeah, if you come to a show now, I'm more. I'll probably talk more about my kids um, than right. I would than I would train riding. Um, or it, you know, in so many of my songs, you know, this is where Avail started really grinding on me too. I, I wrote the, the 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 a whole song, drums, bass, guitar, and vocals of a a Vale song called West Y, Y is spelled W Y E. It's a railroad term. And I wrote the song in first person, but it's not about me. It's about a train rider, a freight train rider. It was sort of my first train song, um, that I made public. Although I've been listening to train songs my whole life and obsessed with trains my whole life. Um, mainly like Woody Guthrie and Jimmy Rogers and, and, um, uh, and uh, Utah Phillips and whatnot, but um, yeah, people took that song way wrong. They thought, you know, like oh, this this guy is writing this first person song, um, and it's like about him. And I was like, this sucks. Like, I can't even tell like a story. You know what I mean? Without yeah. being judged, not just by my by the people who were listening to Avail, but by my bandmates. And it's just like, all right, this is weird. I can't write a folk song in a punk band.
2: Right. I got, I got to figure out how to separate these two things. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Um, and the, this kind of harkens back to a little bit of what we were talking about previously where um, the, you know, waving the flag for Richmond and, but then constantly living that nomadic lifestyle of what you were talking about. Um, I'm sure you have tried and have ebbed and flowed within the balance of being present in Richmond versus being, a nomad and being on tour and stuff like that. Um, you know, how has that affected you? I guess as a, as a person, because I'm sure there's been times where you've been away and been like, this is hell. I need to get like to the river and then vice versa where it's like, you're on the river and you're like, I got to get out there.
1: Yeah. My whole life has been that way. It's crazy. It, th- there has been an incredible push pill pull. I've always thought, um, you know, it's, I'm always in a rush to get home. And then once I'm here, I don't know what the rush was. Sure. <laughs> and that's the only way I can sum it up. Yep. And then I'm ready to go again. And so if if I'm between Tours of the Veil and management stuff is caught up and I hear, you know, a, a train symbols change, I'm like, well, I'm going to try to ride this train to this new location. And, and um, back then I had like – I don't know. I had all these weird ways of doing it, where I'd had thrift store bikes that I locked up in different towns, so I could ride trains to different towns and I'd have a bike and, I'd <laughs> and and set up a new camp and um, and all. I you know, yeah. And then and then you know, like nowadays, I do the same thing with the kids. It's like I just like let's go camping, and camping might be going on the north side of the river, directly across from our house, and sleeping in tents. <laughs> <laughs> or, or going upriver, or you know, going to a cabin or something like that. So in that hopefully I'm not instilling that too much in my children. But I think uh, America, contemporary American culture is very rootless and very nomadic. So many people move. I mean, we we move in circles. I don't. I know very few people who are born and stayed in Virginia. We're all over the place. And I think right. those for all states.
2: Sure. Sure. And, uh, the, I mean, much has been made, uh, about, I mean, from a press perspective in regards to, you know, avail coming back and playing shows. And uh, especially just because I know a lot of people like to rub in your face of like, Oh, t- Tim, you said you would never get back and play with a veil, which I think is so funny that people mm-hmm. like to mention that. But, um, so how have you seen kind of like the legacy of the band reflected back on you in regards to just having all of the, I mean, I know the monumental moments of just like, Oh, we're only selling hard tickets. And then that show sells out. It's like, Oh, all these weird things that I know that you had no inkling was going to happen. Um, You know, so how does that kind of like ping pong in your head or is it simply
1: just another cool show that you get to play? Well, first and foremost, I think it's hilarious how people feel like they can control another person by bringing up things that they <laughs> want. Totally. Because I just don't give a fuck. Like, I really don't care. And I said this to Nick from No Lies uh, whatever, podcast uh, Um, No Lies Just Bullshit podcast when I first announced the avail shows, it was like, I reserve the right to change my opinion whenever the hell I want. And I owe nothing to anyone other than my small family and I. Um, and I. And to leave that behind, um, the Avail reunion shows uh, were really exciting. I mean, like, as I was saying earlier, like, we spent our, our whole many years driving around in a van, playing every little teeny town in the world, and we had no idea. The impact that it had on so many people, you know, when you play a trailer park in Biloxi, Mississippi for 20 people, you don't realize the impact it has on them or um, you, you play in, um, you know, a small town in Iowa or or um, Danville, Illinois or, you know, like you just don't realize what people take from it. And I think what I realized with the Avail shows, the reunion shows that happened in July of 2019, is that all of those people came back together to celebrate. And I always believe, first and foremost, that music is a form of celebration. And I felt that at the shows, the energy was, was really there. And all of the people who traveled from all over the place, including abroad, that came, came to celebrate. And um, it was really remarkable, especially now after two years of pandemic, that a lot of us won't see each other again. And that makes those events really perfectly timed and um, far more meaningful uh, that we all got to get together again. But, yeah, the absurdity of, like, technology and how the shows sold out so quickly um, was very new to me. I mean... I have solo shows sell out, but they they do it slowly. Well, occasionally they'll sell out really quick. But, like, I mean, like, the first – so we, we are humble people. Avail had holds. That means that we had venues available uh, at the National, which is a 1,200 capacity club. The next day at the National was held. That's the same 1,200 capacity club. But because the guys in Avail were so unconfident about selling out the 1,200 capacity club – we had other venues in Richmond on hold that were far smaller, 500 capacities and 250 capacities and stuff like that, because the confidence wasn't there that people would really even care. So the first show, it's it the way the music business plans it is the first show goes on sale. It's a Friday show. The show goes on sale if it sells out. And it seems like there's a lot of excitement about it. You'll put tickets on sale for the second show which would be at the big venue or the small venue depending on how excited people are so the first show goes on sale and um, I guess it sold out in under 20 seconds and then there is quickly you know because nobody can ever just say oh my god congratulations that's really exciting people had to say robots bought the tickets and um, did you hear this
2: yeah, I did. And yeah, so, you're like, what does so, that even mean? Right.
1: So, well, no, I do know what it means. But they're like, bots bought the tickets. It's impossible this band that toured for 20 years <laughs> could actually sell out a 1200 capacity show in 20 seconds. It's like, why is everybody so spiteful and angry and filled with assumption? It's so strange. Why, why can't you just say congratulations? <laughs> totally, totally. So the promoter and our agent and the venue went through the sales to make sure that it wasn't bots. And it was, um, they were all real people who bought the tickets. But what we noticed was that for whatever reason, however algorithms work or whatever ticket things, online ticket outlets work, many Richmonders didn't get tickets or Central Virginians, which is disappointing. So we put tickets on sale for the Saturday show, but in person. So people drove, started driving overnight from Florida and Boston and all these places. And that's where the celebration really started in the streets of Richmond on Broad Street uh, and circling around the block at the venue. The National was people just there all night, you know, and they all had something in common. And that's where like the real reunion started. And that show sold out um, in person um, by people actually like buying tickets at the box office. and that bond that that, that was created there is really what I think represents a veil um, yeah overall no, I, from I, I would from beginning to end
2: yeah, I would agree and I, I think that that I mean even as a person like I did not uh, attend those shows, but like, just seeing that and feeling that celebratory nature, it really you know even from 3,000 miles away, it very much felt like, what i experienced you know watching you at various places in southern california where it's just like oh a veil's ta- a veil's in town not only do i have to go but i know this is going to be a wild celebration and like that's you know th- that is part of the legacy that is, is pretty cool to be able to you know witness so many years later to where it's like oh it still is the same feeling like that's a positive thing and not just like purely a nostalgia trip this is like like you said a celebration
1: Yep, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And really to to really nail it down is like it, it's when the band becomes bigger than just the five middle-aged white dudes who are playing the um the music. It's 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 the whole community. Yep. Uh, that you can't have something like that unless everyone's in it. Yep. Oh totally, totally. Uh, and the last
2: thing I want to hit on was the fact that, um, you know, I know like you've mentioned your kids a couple of times and just like I- existing in this very, you know, unconventional space of, you know, DIY punk and hardcore. And then like you said, you know, your neighbors look at you like you are a crazy person because you live in a nine hundred square foot, <laughs> you know, place. Um, you know, so how do you feel like that, uh, purview has affected you know like your your parenting do you find yourself because you know clearly i imagine at one point your parents were looking at the you know weird music you were bringing home and being like what the hell is tim into um and i'm sure you are maybe more permissive with your kids so i realize there's a big question in there but um just that idea of like how all of your experiences are
1: kind of like leaning into your kids i don't know but i never really thought about what my mom was thinking when I was lifting this am <laughs> at war with Satan. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. I'm sure it's she hilarious. Probably, she probably was like, what is wrong with my son? I would go to church with a shirt that said, look at me, Satan's child, born of evil, dust defiled. <laughs> <laughs> so good. So good. Church poor mom. I, You know, I heard recently somebody talk about the... Two styles of parenting, and I can't really touch on it because I don't know much about uh, this concept, but just these two words really resonate with me, that there's the carpenter style of parenting where it's really mapped out and it's really done with precision and intent, and then there's the version that I am, which is the gardener who puts the seed in the ground and sees what grows. And notes that if there's not enough rain, it needs water. And if there's not enough sun, you need to intervene. And that the harvest can be so different from the year before. Um, I really don't know what I'm doing as a parent other than really going by instinct. And um, it's the, with the, The coming of my first daughter, my nine-year-old Leela Jane, I started to learn how to actually practice patience. And uh, Coralie and her have taught me so much about myself. And really, um, I don't see my life as very different from anybody else's until somebody says, like, your kids have a really unique perspective of the world. And uh, I don't know if that's a compliment or if it's a insult. <laughs> sure, sure. But um, they're both very smart, and I learn a lot from them. I probably get more from them than they'll ever know. And um, I have been lucky to have had incredible life experiences, and I've been lucky to have traveled all around the world and played everything from massive festivals to tiny squats and um, I continue to do those things. But this morning driving to school, I was trying to explain to Leela how different her daddy is compared to so many other people. But really, like, with all of my life experiences, my greatest accomplishment is being a dad. There's just no other way to put it.
2: Yeah. No, it's, it's a really... Uh, The reason I like to ask that question in particular is because I I think that generationally speaking, um, you know, we, this music scene has existed long enough to where, you know, you are seeing, you know, kids of people that started to go to shows, you know, in the eighties and nineties or whatever. And there's no way that you can't spill that onto your kids, you know, both positive and negatively, like every other life experience. But I do think that, this, you know, especially the DIY nature. It's not like, you know, you ask permission to start a veil. You just did it. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I just, li- I, I like that idea of reflecting it on, you know, the next generation of like, what are, what are the things that they are going to do that they are not going to ask permission for and just do it. And, you know, we'll all be back being like, wow, what the hell was that? That's crazy. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah.
1: I can't wait. <laughs> it's, I can't it, wait it's, to it's, see what they yeah. did. I mean, and I mean, all kids, uh, I, I can't wait. I can't wait for them to take over. I can't wait to sit back and make them feed me, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and watch, and watch their show, or Absolutely. see their or see their art, or read their book. I can't wait. We've yeah. we, we have we have a very challenging world right now, and I'm excited to see what these young and smart and proactive uh, younger you know. Small people are going to pull off I, mean, I think it's very exciting
2: Yeah, yeah. totally Well, Tim, I uh, really appreciate you hanging out and Thanks for letting me ping pong around your brain It's uh, It's been great
1: Oh man, I don't talk enough So that was a, what a trip I'm going to go, you know I'm going to close this fucking computer And walk straight down to the train yard too
2: <laughs> Of course, dude Yeah, an hour, <laughs> you're like, this is good, man This is all I got me
1: This is as much time as I, I like being on the computer Wasn't that just a treat?
2: Mr. Tim Berry. I, uh, I wasn't nervous per se heading into this conversation, but I definitely was like, Oh man, I hope Tim's Tim's down to chat. And within five minutes, I was like, this dude is the realest of the real. And I love it. So thank you very much, Tim. Thank you very much, James his publicist. And like I said, go pick up that C-sheet Re release of that great record from Avail and support Tim Barry forever. Cause, like, you know, you should. He's a great musician and a road warrior, as it were. Next week is going to be a little touch and go because I'm actually switching podcast servers. So you may not get a new episode next week, or if you do, it will be like a day or two early. So uh, I, I I promise just follow along with this podcast and you will be able to get a new episode delivered right to your ear holes as long as you follow it. Um, if not, then I'll punish you some other way to listen to the show. But <laughs> in any event, next week there will be an episode. It will just be, uh, you know, a little, little bit different schedule. So uh, that's what I got and I'm not telling you who it is this week because, um yeah, there's a uh, the l- little influx there. So keep you in suspense or something like that. But anyways, until next week, please be safe, everybody. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.
1: Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
2: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?